Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome, everyone, to Beyond Surviving, the safe space for survivors of childhood sexual abuse to receive support, resources, and share their stories. Beyond Surviving is about freedom, healing, connection, and even laughter and fun. Most importantly, it's about letting go of the pain of abuse and finally moving on. I'm Rachel Grant, and for those of you who don't yet know me, I've been a sexual abuse recovery coach since 2007 and I'm the author of Beyond Surviving, The Final Stage of Recovery from Sexual Abuse. You can learn more about me and the Beyond Surviving program at rachelgrantcoaching.com. Now, today I'm so very excited to have here with me my guest, Sonia Shah. And we're going to be talking about and exploring the topic of restorative justice, which I am chomping at the bit <laughs> to get into with Sonia. Um, this is such an important topic and one that um, I know all of you are going to be really um, edified by, understanding it as a resource and as approach for healing. Now, I first came into knowing Sonia a couple of years ago, actually. I was attending a, a dance project by one of my graduates, actually, who's gone on to do and produce really amazing um, dance work in the, in the area of dance and uh, afterwards, they had this panel, and I was just so taken with everything that Sonia shared and her presence, um, and, and I came to find that she initiated the Ahimsa Collective back in 2016, so we're going to get into that and, and what Ahimsa Collective is all about today, but I want you to know that she's also an associate professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies, 
very central to her core values are nurturing community belonging and collective care, healing, compassion, love, and transforming harm. So she's totally in the right place here, right? Uh, she's a Buddhist. She's a first generation immigrant from the Northwestern part of India and feels most at home at nature. And this country girl can certainly resonate with that. <laughs> so she also has two amazing children and that really always help her stay present and aware to be in love all the time. And she like me is here um, in the Bay Area, Northern California. So Sonia, welcome. I'm so happy to be here with you today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here with you. <laughs> so um, to get us going today, maybe you can start out with just telling us a little bit about how you got in to this work. Like, how did you land here in this world of doing um, restorative justice and community healing? Um, yeah, I'd love to hear more about your journey. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, I think probably like most people who are listening and you as well, that my journey has definitely not been a straight line um, in any sense of the word. I think um, also having experiences of child sexual abuse early on, coming from um, and being an immigrant, first generation, uh, with parents who really did their best but didn't really have a clue of what it meant to kind of raise a child in the U.S., um, I just grew up very confused, very lost, very in the dark, you know, pretty terrified of kind of everything in the world around me. And when I got to college, in my first week of college, I kind of remembered, you know, my own past and what had happened. And for me, really, that really started a journey of, you know, coming into healing for myself, which then I think for many of us that are deeply in community with others turns into coming into community and wanting to be in community with others who are also dealing with a lot of suffering. Um, and so through many different circumstances, you know, kind of always was really interested in how do we do the least harm? How do we think about, um, you know, ways in which we are parallelly working on our own healing as well as thinking about kind of um, the suffering and healing and reconciliation of others? Um, and I think that's where, you know, I had always kind of played this role as a mediator or peacemaker and landed in this place of, of a restorative practices or a restorative approach where um, we can really try to understand with more complexity the human condition and the many sides of it and the many ways that we all do harm and we all heal. My goodness. So, you know, just tackling small things, no big <laughs> This is like a major, wow, like what you're tackling and what you're leaning into, the complexity of humanity, right? The complexity of human relationship, what causes harm, impact of harm, how to resolve that. In so many ways, you know, I'm hearing that in what you're sharing and, and how you've been informed and influenced by your own journey. Absolutely, I can relate to that, you know, um, as they often say, you know, our pain becomes a purpose. and um, there's so much that you've been out there in the world doing since 2016. Um, so tell me a little bit about the Ahimsa Collective. What is that all about? What are you all doing? And, and how does that um, play a part in these things that you care so very much about? Yeah. Well, I, my kind of journey with the world of like 
restorative justice started maybe about 12 years ago, and I've been working, doing various things. Um, ended up kind of at a pretty toxic organization, which I know also many people resonate with, like, um, and decided to leave it. And five years ago, just didn't really think about starting an organization. It was really just starting a project, which led into an organization. But so um, ahimsa is a Sanskrit word that means do no harm. And so we really sit kind of like at the nexus of like doing deeper healing work and deeper restorative practices work when it's appropriate restorative justice work. And then also just being a part of a movement of people um, that are really focused on centering kind of healing and restorative justice. And so we do a lot of things. We work deeply with people in, who are incarcerated that have done harm about kind of their own healing journeys as well in, as well as coming into accountability. Um, we do face-to-face -face dialogues with folks that have done harm and survivors. Um, we work really a lot with survivors, kind of more one-on-one. -on -one. We've had some survivor groups as well. Um, yeah, we do a lot of trainings in this kind of field of restorative justice. Um, and yeah, we have a lot of different, from that has stemmed many other things that are is related to um, being involved in like criminal justice reform, in survivors' voices, in centering survivors, in um, abolition, and in all this kind of conversation around these things. Yeah, yeah. So what I take from that is the work that you're doing certainly can um, be in relation to people who have experienced sexual trauma and that sort of harm, that sort of violence. But more than that, the Hemsa Collective is really stretched into these other areas um, where people are impacted and where harm occurs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love that. What has surprised you the most in this part of your journey and coming into really focusing on this work? Anything that has just kind of caught you off guard, surprised you, inspired you? Yeah, I mean, I think like, like, I feel like it's no small task to try to build, you know, an organization, like in a good way, where mm -hmm. there's so much around us and the way that we relate to each other is not in a good way. And so given like that we're humans with a lot of complex lives and all of our own trauma and all of our own racial dynamics and all of our own like past experiences with money or whatever shows up, how do you be with a group of, you know, like six or six staff and we have another sort of tier of a thing we call the core family, which is 14 of us. Mm -hmm. How do we be as 14 people kind of making so many parts of this organization work and then so many other what we call cousins like contractors that we kind of work with and create more than just like oh this is our work but this is meaningfulness this is belonging um this is like how to you know be together in a world in the world in the way that we want to and so yeah that's been a magnificently difficult and <laughs> rewarding task at the same time and i think I've just learned so much about myself in terms of leadership, in terms of like how to do this, how to not harm each other. Um, so I think that's been very rewarding, challenging, surprising. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's kind of one of the reasons why I hide out as a solopreneur. <laughs> Those complexities, I'm like, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. I'm not ready to take that on. 
Um, and, but I love just the, the sense of kind of family that you're creating and connection and community within the, the context of the people who are there helping you and supporting you and collectively working together because it certainly does take a tribe. And that it sounds like you're often able to maybe even draw on some of the, the skills and tools that you teach um, in helping you navigate even within your organization and keeping an eye towards like, what is it that I really want this to be? And how do I keep that on track and in alignment and keep nudging it back? Um, because I'm under, yeah, absolutely. When you have all those extra pressures or outside pressures, it's super easy to find yourself deterred at times. Has there ever been a moment in your journey where you thought, ugh, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. It's too much. Ever felt like that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, it, it happened more early on when, hmm. when maybe in the first, well, not even in the first year. There was a moment where we moved from kind of uh, in our sort of second to third year from a small staff of like 0.5 each to like four or five people. And we got some big funding to do that. And I think that was a big shift. And it's something about like grappling with everybody's personalities and everything kind of would make, would make me feel that way. And mm -hmm. I think also like as a woman of color, as a person in leadership, and there's so few of us who run organizations, you know, that this idea of like feminist leadership and what does that look like when you have also men on staff that are maybe more used to like operating in a hierarchy, but then I'm not leading through a same sort of soldier lens, um, right. somebody said, and kind of really having to grapple with coming to terms with like, well, no, my leadership style is kind of more checking in and collaborative, you know, and, you know, some of the men, it bugged them that I wasn't as mm. like sort of soldiery, like tell me, you know, you're supposed to be the, boss in charge and tell me what to do and I'm like no that's not how it's going to go down right yeah. so so this coming up even not even realizing that we were coming up against like irritation around you know that and then how do we create respect for like a different style of leadership so yeah so, you know and then I think you know doing work in prison with people who've done harm and sexual harm in specific yeah. is challenging um is deeply rewarding um but there have been moments where it's like you know, I know when like a story gets stuck, you know, that that's when like that vicarious trauma piece is happening and that I need to like take a break or I need to talk to people or I need to do something different. So there have been moments where the story has gotten stuck and mm -hmm. I've had to figure out how to like move it around, you know, and um, move my energy around it in some ways. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I uh, actually have stopped doing... Um, I don't do as much of the work directly inside okay. anymore because I've, I've needed a break. So. Yeah. Oh, I get it. <laughs> I get it. Right. Uh, our capacity to hold, you know, space for others and for their yeah. experiences and their pain and their stories and that piece of vicarious trauma. For those of you listening, if you're not sure about that, go Google that term. It's really important, particularly if you're in a role where you are, um, you know, facilitating and, and hearing stories, witnessing stories, um, that we take care of ourselves in the midst of that. It's so easy to get into a place of burnout. I also so appreciate you speaking to and naming just the challenges that, um, you know, we face as women in roles of leadership and those dynamics and that you've to your guns go ahead Sonia <laughs> like no nope, make 
I'm not going over here into this like traditional patriarchal model. I'm staying here in this lane that I think really has something to offer. And clearly it's working. You guys are just expanding and doing so much great work out in the world. It's really, really inspiring. If you all go over to the, the website, ahimsacollective.net. Um, yeah, net. That's a h i m s a collective.net. Just you'll be blown away by all of the things and all the resources and all the, the what they're up to in the world. Really beautiful. So I just want to really celebrate you in this moment, I suppose, because it is no small thing what you've created and what you've done and got out there in the world. Um, I'd like to get into some of the nitty gritty. So I know that this phrase or this idea of restorative justice, you know, came on my radar maybe about six or seven years ago and, um, you know, began to research and read a little bit of it and kind of dip my toe into that world. Um, but certainly one of the reasons why I wanted to have you here is because I really um, see you as an expert in this. And um, so I'd love to hear your point of view, first of all, on what is restorative justice? Can you give our listeners just a you know, an elementary education on what is this and what's the idea behind it? Yeah, I mean, and again, this is going to be probably like not a straight line answer. So, but the fundamental premise of like restorative justice is that, you know, it's kind of like a community-based solution to addressing harm. So that what we do when harm happens is we don't like outsource it to a state or an outside body or something to solve the harm. But when harm happens, it's really like a violation to a community and to the survivors. And what we need to do is address it in community. And from there, it takes many different forms. So um, imagine, for example, that you're sitting in a room or you're in a school and somebody gets up and starts beating somebody else up. Um, the first thing that would happen in a punitive system is that you would call the police. The police would come and they would arrest the person who was beating up the other person. And in a traditional, in a criminal legal system, basically no one cares about the survivor. The survivors are used um, for conviction. And no one cares about the person who done, who's done harm. The person who's done harm, they just want to lock them up and throw away the key. Mm. So nobody's needs get met. Wow. And we're really just sort of like a slave to like this legal system um, that is based in punishment and based in um, extracting, you know, punishment. And adversarial and the fight between the public defender and the DA and all that. Stuff, right, And so that's what a criminal legal system looks like. A restorative system looks like centering the needs of a survivor, asking the survivor what they want and need, and also trying to understand more from the perspective of the person who did harm why they did it and what they need in, to, in order to unwind their own lives and sort of connect the dots of their life that led to the moment why they did that to someone else. Because violence doesn't like happen in a vacuum. No way. You know, everyone has heard the phrase hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. And so it's trying to understand what led you to this moment where you snapped and this behavior happened. And then how do you be accountable for it? And in different constellations, whether we're talking about um, from smaller harms like, you know, a robbery or beating someone up 
to larger harms like rape, child sexual abuse, you know, murder, whatever, the, it's going to change, right? What we're talking yeah. about, how much a survivor needs, how much the person who did harm needs, how much time away from the situation they need, how much the state is going to get involved is all going to be different. Mm. So restoring okay. processes basically are set up to address those things in different levels of severity at different ages and along that kind of continuum. And it's definitely still a work in progress. You know, we're still having to work, you know, to try to set something up that's outside of the state system is not an easy thing. So that's basically, you know, that's kind of the gist. So. Thank you. Wow, that really hit me in the gut when you talked about the legal system as it stands now is using the victim to just facilitate this, this role, you know, punishment and this process and not really caring about the needs. And boy, do I see that so much, you know, in the stories I hear from my clients and from the men and women in my community where they feel like they are just kind of these pawns that are being pushed around this board and um, what they want, what they need is not really on the table. And then the other side of the coin that the person who's caused harm is actually not being cared for either. Um, it's just all in this world of, of punitive. Is there any place where, or any circumstance in which you have um, been able to utilize restorative justice practices in collaboration with the traditional legal system? Have you seen that? Has that been an opportunity? Is that workable? Or not really? Are they in too much conflict to coincide? Well, yeah, I mean, this is probably like the biggest place of difficulty and contention and trying to figure things out. So, you know, in an ideal world, what we would be doing is diversion. We would be not sending people to prison. We would be centering survivors and we would find a plan in the community to like address the harm. And there are um, these diversion projects all over the country, mainly for young people under the age of 25 um, who have done some harm. And, you know, um, the project there in Oakland, the Impact Justice is really kind of leading those efforts. Um, in Baltimore and other places, a lot is going on. Um, we do a lot of things that happen sort of post-conviction. People are already in prison. 15 years later, a survivor reaches out and says, oh my God, you know, I never really got healing from being in the court. You know, mm -hmm. I'm still, still angry. I'm still hurt. I'm still, and I want to really just talk to this person and do, so this is the next leg of my healing journey. I think as we talk about like the final leg, like okay. a lot of many survivors, you know, having as an option that they also can like just meet with the person who did harm to them and understand them better, ask all their questions, you know, express what they need to express. Some folks are in deep forgiveness. Some people just need to really say what they need to say, and it's an opportunity to do that. So the, that's on opposite mm, okay. And then, you know, there are different ways that we might or might not interface with the criminal legal system, but, but you know, the most contentious place is when somebody has already been charged but not been um, convicted um, and we don't really want to do restorative justice in that place because we don't want to be so in bed with the system okay and say, like we'll do this with the DAs and the, you know we don't want to make it a part of the criminal legal system so that they can offer restorative justice it should be a separate thing 
that's happening outside of the system. I see. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And one of the things that I, um, you know, read a little bit about on your website is the, you know, victim offender dialogues. And um, I think let's take a short break and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about that piece because I know so many people listening are in that question of trying to figure out what does that look like? Do I do that? Should I do, do that? So we'll just pause for a moment and then be right back. Have you ever felt like you've tried everything to heal from the pain of sexual abuse? and yet nothing seems to be really helping? Well, one of the reasons why most people struggle to break free from the pain of past child abuse is because the techniques out there are positioned as a one-size-fits-all answer. What I want you to know is that there are actually three distinct phases on the path to recovery, and I'd love to share with you about these phases, what issues you must resolve to move to the next phase, and what kinds of support you'll need in order to move forward as quickly and completely as possible. The road to recovery is much easier when you know what stage you're in and what to do next. So don't hesitate. Go to rachelgrantcoaching.com checklist and get your nine-page guide today. Now back to our show. Awesome. Welcome back. So, Sonia, one of the things that you um, have developed, or and actually that's a question, is this a process that you've developed? Is, a pro- is it a process that you've used by blending and pulling from other resources? Um, but one of the things that you facilitate are these victim-offender dialogues. Um, and, you know, one of the things I read on your website was even just using that language and, like, that, the importance of that language, and maybe we can speak about that as a place to start, what is a victim-offender dialogue? Why do we use that languaging? Um, and what, what does that look like? Yeah, no, that's great. So first of all, like, we use words like survivor, um, person who caused harm, person who experienced harm, partly because, like, the word offender um, and, or victim can sort of trap people in identity as opposed to be an act. So really separating the person from an act is yeah. not the worst things that we ever did. And we're not the worst things that we've ever experienced. Mm, cheers but, to that. Yeah, but the word victim offender dialogue a lot is a nationally known word. And it's a national like program that has takes shape all across the country. So we, you know, we don't have a choice but to use that word. Got it. Okay. But the premise of it is really a face-to-face dialogue between a survivor and a person who did harm. It's survivor initiated 100%, you know, survivor who says this is something I want to do. And it's about working, you know, closely with separate parties to come to a place where both are ready to have this conversation. Um, There's two ways that we're doing this that I think are really exciting. One, as I mentioned, it's after really serious harm, murder, rape, child sexual abuse. Um, People have been convicted. Um, We work in close collaboration with victim services um, in California. So... A survivor can reach out to victim services and say, oh, my God, this happened to me 15 years ago. I really Mm. want to talk to this person. Um, Victim services will do a really quick scan of where that person is. And once they find them, um, they send that that sort of dialogue case to one of four community-based organizations in California, and we're one of them. And then they, they let it go. They have nothing to do with it. And we just work side by side, you know, separately, our facilitators work with both parties and then bring people together. And that can take anywhere from like three months because people are ready to go and ready to sort of talk or two years because there's a lot of work that has to happen on both sides. 
Yeah. Um, and then the other piece that's really important, and I think that's happening more and really exciting, um, which is similar face-to-face -face dialogue, is a restorative process kind of happening in communities. So there's so many people that are reaching out, um, saying, hey, this happened to me and I don't want to call the police. Hey, I'm a person who did harm and I think I need to be accountable. How do I do that? Wow. Hey, I'm a bystander. I noticed this thing happening and I really need to say something. I don't know how to do it. Hey, I'm an organization where there's some historical things happening. Mm. So we're in the process right now of trying to figure out a really thoughtful system of how to have facilitators, therapists, restorative justice practitioners, different kinds of interventions available um, for people who reach out in the community to say, I have the impetus to not want to call the police and I want to do this other thing. So what can I do? And really depending on them and the other person, it's going to be like kind of like a decide your own adventure, right? Okay. It's like if the person doesn't want to talk, then how can you still do your own healing? Mm -hmm. If the person does, then it, maybe there's a process. If you're a bystander, but nobody wants to do anything how do you still work with the community to kind of do something so there's so many different avenues that can happen depending on um like how people are reaching out to us so we're in the process of kind of trying to formalize that a bit more wow that's so powerful and i you know i can imagine there are so many communities where you know, not going through the legal system is ultimately going to be a huge benefit to them because of the biases, because of the racism, because of the lack of trauma-informed training that police officers and legal, like the whole system on that side of it is just um, jacked, if you ask me. <laughs> In my humble opinion. But, and so to have these alternative avenues and yeah, thinking about how do we get the word out, which is one of the reasons why I'm so glad to have you here in conversation. Like I want you all to know that there are other pathways that you can travel um, towards, you know, healing in this way and accessing this type of conversation. One of the questions that comes up all of the time in my community around this is, do I have to? Like, can I heal? Can I be okay? Can I live a quote unquote normal life? Or is having a conversation, I mean, oftentimes people are using the word confrontation, which I usually direct them away from and direct them more towards this idea of dialogue. I love that dialogue conversation. Um, I'd love to hear your thought about that. Like, what are the pros? What are the cons? What role does this play in a person's, you know, overall journey of healing? What are, what are your thoughts on that, Sonia? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely never um, required. You know, everything is really up to the survivor, and you are in charge of your own healing journey. And it's kind of all about one's own um, decision and agency to figure out what we need. And all we're saying is that here's another pathway if you choose to. If you choose to, here's another pathway. I don't have any thoughts about or judgments about whether somebody does or doesn't. I feel like it's very personal. Yeah. Um, it's political for that person. It's personal for that person. It's based on where they are in their lives. There's no requirement to anything. And so I think what's most important is just really seeing the restorative option as just another pathway, another option for those that feel like, wow, this is like kind of a part of my journey. You know, mm -hmm. I want this to be a part of my journey. I want to have this piece in my life spoken to. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I can say for myself with people that I've been in conflict with, 
there are some people I want to talk to. I want to work out things. I want reconciliation. And there's some that I don't. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some that, well, I'm keeping the door open to, well, I don't want to right now, but I might in a year or two or a month or six. So what does it even mean? Like, we don't give enough attention to the time we need to be hurt, to be angry, to be healing, to be in our own stuff, you know, around something. And I think we need to give more respect to the time that we need and the time it takes. So there might be a yes, it might be a no, or it might be a maybe in the future. <laughs> That's so but true. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Door open and we keep the door open. Then we're saying we're always here and the door's open. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really important thing you bring forward, which is the idea of reconciliation that we can have. Um, well, you can tell me if you agree that we can have a, a conversation with somebody who's caused us harm and not necessarily restore the relationship or reconcile the relationship. We just do that in the space of I need to express what I need to express. I hope to maybe hear some answers or to get some better understanding, but there isn't a requirement to then be in relationship with them. And I think people sometimes get tripped up about that, um, that there's that, there's that piece. Do you, do you see that too, that, the, that that can exist? You can have these conversations without that requirement. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that, yeah, I think that that happens, you know, you know, kind of all the time, you know, I, I think I, I might, I got distracted by something, so maybe repeat the question. Yeah, no, just, just um, honoring that space that you were talking about. <laughs> Life. <laughs> Who isn't distracted right now, Sonia? Oh my God, the world. <laughs> we're lucky we can even be here. I mean, it's totally, everything's so mad right now in the world. And yeah, and so being able to step into these conversations, it's always a choice. You're not required to stay in relationship with that person. And that openness, I want to just reiterate what you said there for everybody listening, that this is not about, um, you know, hurry up and get there. You know, I think that's the other thing that I see the, mis- the mis- often like a misstep is that oftentimes there's external pressure from communities um, of just hurry up and get over it. And there's this idea that to do that, you would, you know, have a conversation like this and that preempts or that negates what the, the space or the time that a person needs to, to go through whatever they need to go through or feel in order to be ready yeah. for this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that I found is like, there's no one way a survivor shows up to these conversations, right? Some are like, I just want to say my piece. There's no forgiveness here. Like that's the part of my healing journey. I'm good. Mm-hmm. And others are like, seriously, and spontaneous forgiveness from the first moment it happened and just really want to have a relationship with the person and express it and like really want to understand the context of how that person got to commit this crime or this harm. And and, and then it's everything in between. So mm-hmm. there's no like requirement for forgiveness. There's no requirement to like have a relationship. There's no requirement to show up and even be nice. I had a really great survivor of child sexual abuse that I worked with for two years who did an incredible dialogue with the person who harmed her, who was her stepfather. And when we were prepping for this, she used to joke, like, do you think I could just, like, get up and, like, smack the shit out of him, you know, like, like, like just climb across the table when we're talking and just punch him? And I would laugh. <laughs> I would laugh. And I said, well, you know, obviously you can't do that. But you can tell him that that's how you feel. And that's yeah. how you feel. You can tell him that he hurt you so bad that that is what you feel like doing and that that is what you want to do. And that is okay to say that out loud. You are yeah. not required to have 
a relationship with this person, you know, and this person is up for hearing what you have to say, you know, and, I, and that meant a lot. And what actually mm. happened in the room then was not that, you know, there mm. was a lot of frustration she went through point by point sort of what had happened in her life. But at the same time, she was writing me little notes on the side because, you know, when you're in prison, you get like almost no food to eat. And she was writing me little notes saying, does he have enough water? You know, the food he's eating looks like crap. Mm. You know, do you think we could give him, you know, something to eat? And I was like, wow, on this little piece of paper, your humanity is coming out at the same time as your expression of all the rage and anger and impact. It doesn't mean that there's forgiveness, but it means this person has the capacity to sit across from another human and see their humanity still. Yes. That's super powerful. It's so powerful. And much more nuanced than like, you have to forgive and and you need to, you don't need to do anything. But like, what a powerful thing to like, be in that experience. And in that experience, you felt that person's humanity and you felt care for them. And what a beautiful thing that you still care for somebody that hurt you so bad. You know, that's amazing. So. Yeah. And, you know, I think it absolutely, and, you know, having, you know, the over a decade of this work, this is what I see so often in people who have experienced harm. They have this amazing capacity when given permission, when given space, and when given tools to be able to hold their pain, their anger, their pissed offness, their, you know, fuck you-ness <laughs> alongside grace, compassion, empathy, humanity. And this is one of the reasons why I was so excited to, to get you here today to talk, because I think the heart of what you're doing is ultimately what we need to do in order to heal mm-hmm. our collectively as humans, as a tribe, um, that if it, we are always in the place of exactly the labels that you were saying, like offender, and then this person is only that and nothing else, or if I am just a victim and only that and nothing else, it limits all of us in re- ways that really have big consequences. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. I literally have like 80 more questions to ask you, but I want to, <laughs> but I want to respect your time, and I want to maybe go to to a question that feels really um, important right now. Um, this question of why did they do it? Why did this person choose to harm me? is a really big question that comes up in the work that I do and for survivors of sexual abuse. And you've been in conversation with lots of people who have had the opportunity to answer that question. And while there's no one answer and while we often know that it it does kind of come back to just a person's choice, um, I wonder from your perspective, like what have you heard? What has been the answer to that question? What have you come to know and understand um, because of the dialogues and the conversations with people? Yeah, that's a huge question. And, you know, it's so complex and not one, there's no one answer, right? And yeah. I think what has been, like, kind of one of the inquiries and, the, like, the deep passions I had entering into this work was that question, was to understand why and more, mm-hmm. um, and have more unraveling of that. And I will say, like, what I've experienced working with people who've done sexual harm and hearing their stories. What I started to do is to just sort of like notice the trends of what people were saying that were coming up. Um, and I think like if I were to say the top five or six trends of what came up and how they're layered on top of each other, um, 
uh, one, uh, you know, was being sort of, you know, I mean, like, let's just say, like, being presented with the opportunity in patriarchy, right? The sense that, like, I have never had to have a check on me. I've never had to have, like, a sense that somebody, I've always been a person where everybody looks to me, you know, and, like, really not having a sense of accountability to other people in community and having the opportunity. Um, I would say another thing has been, um, you know, sort of this really like weird early exposure to to kind of um, to like like pornography or really negative or othering relationships to women or girls. So, you know, men that for whatever reason were overweight or outcast or awkward or like you know honestly like racially different from everyone else and bullied and treated badly um and not feeling at a young age that they like could get a girl mm -hmm. uh, and you know had no idea of how to have a relationship with a girl um being turned like somehow finding their way towards like you know pornography or like othering women and like the othering of, of girls and women just became bigger and bigger and deep, bigger and deeper and deeper and deeper right. um, coupled with like drugs and alcohol coupled with other crappy things happening in my life coupled with all of those things and then patriarchy you know leading to like um the worst day of my life where I crossed over into a violation mm. um many of the folks that I've talked to you know, had been like, you know, this was my third day where I was up on speed and hadn't slept and on a rampage, like, like literally hitting rock bottom at the worst moment of their lives, you know, and then turning, you know, all of these other things into this kind of like sexual violation. Um, so, you know, others talked about like just the intense exposure to like the dehumanization of women, right? Being around uncles and big homies and blah blah mm, blah kind mm -hmm. of just said, like that's just the way it is this is just what you do like the kind of enculturation and the normalization of sexual violence towards women um being hearing it in music hearing it in your family hearing it in eh, saying that you got lucky if an older woman yeah. was interested in you so like all this messaging of like that it's okay to be violent that you're lucky that you're this, that you're that, that it's okay. You know, that I think is like a deep message for young boys. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think like, you know, those are like, I would say some of the really big trends I've seen. I think the one that's really the most complicated um, is around boys that have been sexually abused, that then folks who turn around and abuse others and then folks who don't. Right. So obviously there's absolutely no correlation between like what, you know, you're abused, you're going to abuse somebody else. That is not true. We all know yeah. that. But then what are the ways in which people are reenacting, you know, at times a pain that they had? And one man I talked to, I remember him saying um, when he sexually abused other boys and he was sexually abused as a boy very severely, he said it had nothing to do with the actual like abuse at all. He said, I wanted that person's childhood ruined the way that my childhood was ruined. Because when I moved into that act, it was because I was really jealous of that boy I was seeing and I wanted their life ruined because my life was ruined. And I heard that a few times from different men. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then you're presented with the opportunity, right? Because you, 
have a friend who has a boy or a girl and right or you have a girlfriend who has a boy or a girl and like this opportunity this young person is right in front of you and now you're moving into that kind of place of reenacting or stealing something that was stolen or the ways that even in a relationship I might play out my really bad habits you know because I might have had bad relationships no excuse yeah. none of these are excuses right. and none of these are set in stone, true for everybody, Correct. just things I've heard that I feel like kind of, oh, I've heard this more than once. Hmm. I've heard this four times. I've heard this five times. I've heard this six times. Yeah. Maybe that's worth repeating because it helps someone else connect the dots of why they committed the, the harm that they did. Yeah. And so powerful. And yeah, just to reinforce what you said there, none of these are excuses, but if we can come into a deeper understanding of what can motivate behaviors, then we just have a better chance of potentially parenting differently, socializing, you know, our boys and our girls differently, changing the messaging that we're getting out there. If we can see that these can be contributing factors to why someone might um, perpetrate violence. So, um, Man, there's more to be said. There's so much more to be said. Um, but I just really am in deep appreciation of you today. Thank you for being here and tackling, you know, these big questions um, with us. I really want to encourage everybody to go over to ahimsacollective.net. Um, check out the resources. Do you want to say anything more about, like, how they might best use your website? Do you all accept donations? Um, anything more you want to say about that, Sonia? I mean, I think to check it out, you know, and I think one, like, in terms of the way, if if you're reaching out and you need to reach out to somebody that's done harm to you, we always, we, like, field every single, you know, inquiry, and we figure out if we can do something or not. Um, and then, yeah, we accept donations, you know. So <laughs> yes, so know. give them your money. <laughs> if you're able to contribute in that way, please do support, 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 support them. If you're able to contribute in other ways by spreading the word about um, the organization or offering time, volunteering, um, being a resource, all of that is more than welcome. Um, so, Sonia, any final thoughts for our listeners today? No, just thank you. Deep appreciation for the conversation. Thank you. Wonderful. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in and joining us today. Uh, don't forget to pop over to rachelgrantcoaching.com as well to check out the resources on sexual abuse recovery coaching um, and other things you can find there, too, to support you in your journey. Please subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a note. Let us know what you think. And then come back next time because we have so much more to share. And until then, take good care of you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.